Welcome to the Orangutan Podcast. I am your host, Anthony Porter. I'm Gary Shapiro. Journey under the canopy with us and through the woods as we discover the rainforest and its conservation. How you doing, Anthony? I'm doing all right. <laughs> Just getting ready to uh, start this next adventure. So to start off this episode, I want to talk a little bit about the habitat of our friend, the orangutan. Can you dive into some deep knowledge nuggets for us to talk about that? Absolutely. Imagine yourself walking into a rainforest on Borneo mm-hmm. and into the habitat where orangutans and other biodiversity you know, live. Um, you're going to find a variety of types of forests. Some of them are going to be very large trees um, with canopies uh, 150 feet up. Others are going to be kind of small heath-type forest or forest that is kind of depauperate with uh, uh, large trees. It's kind oh. of like pole trees. And you're going to find... You know, swamps. You're going to find freshwater swamps. You're going to find uh, a variety of habitats. And it turns out, of course, orangutans like spending time on the trees. It's probably not surprising. It, walk around in the swamps is kind of difficult. <laughs> yeah. So if you're elevated above the swamps, and this is where they like to live, in the lower parts of the forest uh, and in the terrain. So when you go like into a place where orangutans are found, um, you get off a boat and you're going to start wandering around in the forest looking for them, you'll notice that, you know, during the rainy season, a lot of this low-lying lying area will be underwater. And it's very, very challenging going through it. Yeah. So, so for the orangutans living near the rivers into those freshwater swamps, the peat swamp forests, uh, you're going to find orangutans, of course, are going to stay up in the trees. And that's a good reason. So when you're wandering around in their habitat, You'll notice a variety of tree types, a variety of forest types, where they're located. And as it turns out, most orangutans are found in the low-lying areas, in the peat swamp forests or in the alluvial forest area. Mm. And as you start going up in higher elevation, the density of orangutans start to fall. Oh, really? Yeah, you don't find them up, you know, greater than like 1,000 meters. They, they just don't want to go up there or 1500 meters they're typically down lower and why do you think why do you think that is is it water access well I think it's because of where the fruit is particularly the the fruit that they uh, really go for and for the other fallback foods that they'll eat oh okay so when you're going up higher and higher uh, you probably have less of that you have different types of food availability mm-hmm. and um, over geological time, they've evolved to really prefer the low-lying areas. And when we're talking about the altitude of somewhere like Borneo, what's the highest kind of mountain range that's in that area? Well, there's mountain ranges uh, throughout the island. Um, Up in the north in, say, Malaysian Borneo, you have Mount uh, Kinabalu, which is very, very high. And, of course, no orangutans are found way up there. But, you know, on Sarawak and Sabah, the two states of Malaysian Borneo, mm-hmm. there are orangutan populations, but they are going to be found down lower where the, where the, the food of, is, is found. And um, you're going to find also on, in Kalimantan some mountain ranges. Um, and, and there's going to be orangutans um, in much lower altitudes there as well. Nice. So the, the mountain ranges serve as barriers preventing 
the populations, uh, the breeding populations, from migrating too far, and just like large rivers. Do you think that that also protects that biodiversity area from getting taken down as a plantation, that altitude? Well, yeah, and in fact, it's very convenient to put your national parks in the higher areas because, you know, it's hard to it's go there. Get, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's protected just by its, its, its height. You know, yeah. people, it's hard to get up there. You know, there's no roads going up into those higher mountain ranges, so you have to trek in on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes it kind of a, it's, it protects them just by their, it's very characteristic of, of being high up. And have you ever done multi-day trips into these kind of just remote areas for long periods of time? I've done eco-tours, and we continue to do some eco-tours, but i got to be honest with you, I don't like climbing those uh, mountainous <laughs> areas. And I've done that a little bit in East Borneo, where there are you know larger or um, mountain ranges that we... Uh, the foothills, mm-hmm. basically, where we go to look for orangutans or uh, release orangutans. But... Um, I like the flat flatlands, and I like the swamps. So <laughs> good. Now I always see like pictures or videos of orangutans hanging out by rivers, but I never see them wading, swimming. I've seen videos. I think uh, David Attenborough had one of one of them paddling in a canoe. Right. But I mean, swimming, I just don't see it. So well, is it? Are they into it? Well, orangutans aren't afraid of water. Mm-hmm. They, but they cannot swim. Their body density is so high, they just can't float. Wow. And so, but they do wade. They'll wade across uh, streams. Um, and we've seen them sometimes uh, with their head underwater, flaring their hands, looking for something to grab onto. And they can hold their breath. Uh, so orangutans, uh, again, like I said, uh, aren't afraid of water. But major river systems have served as an effective barrier, oh, preventing them from um, moving from one large area to another. Um, the fragmentation, uh, by the way, has been something that has contributed to their vulnerability to ext- extinction. So as their habitat is being fra- uh, fragmented, either by river systems or by our own activity of bringing in large farmlands or uh, roads mm-hmm. or other types of um, uh, development, uh, this serves as another factor for fragmenting uh, orangutan populations and has profound consequences on their conservation. Yeah, and I've seen studies where it's not just orangutans. I mean, if there's a, a clear-cut path in the rainforest, it also affects birds, their migration. They see that there's a stark contrast. They don't want to be exposed in these areas from predators. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah. And I've seen that, I think chimpanzees have close to 0% body fat. Is that is that true for orangutans as well? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Orangutans want to sequester fat. It's one of the things they try to oh, do. Oh, okay. Uh, the cheek pads, in fact, might be an advertisement to females that this male orangutan can protect them in their home range. Mm-hmm. So there's enough food, enough kind of high caloric food like fat to allow the females to get enough fat in their bodies to ovulate. Mm-hmm. So just as we know with like high level athletes, the females who run and have almost no fat, they may actually have problems ovulating. Um, with with orangutans, same thing is true. Uh, they need to have enough body fat so they can ovulate and have an offspring. Yeah. Yeah. So um, 
they do want to actually put on fat. It's the biggest challenge in their lives. Wow. So um, one of the reasons why they like to eat fruit, and they're, they're the world's largest frugivore or arboreal frugivore, is that it provides instant energy, right, in the form of sugar. Yeah. And, and, and they are literally uh, balancing on this uh, survival rail of either being having basic adequate nutrition or starvation. Really? Yeah, it's that that tight. And it's one of the reasons why they spread out, they, they've dispersed, and they don't have, say, family groups like we see with the other social great apes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the males are by themselves almost like 90-some-odd percent of the time, and they live a very lonely life looking for fruit uh, and actually going for the less preferred foods just to maintain their body bulk. So you're saying that their caloric intake is so high that they can't afford to hang out with other people other orangutans for too long. Well, they can adjust their caloric, actually their metabolism. There's some studies showing they go into what? ketosis and they have to actually uh, conserve uh, and, they're, and they're trying, of course, to find the fruits. But, you know, unless there's like a major burst of fruiting in the forests mm-hmm. of Borneo called mast fruiting, uh, they may be struggling for, for months and months or years just to maintain their body size and to be able to survive. Wow. Yeah. And um, so over time, over evolutionary time, they've had to adjust their metabolism to deal with the, um, you know, the situation at hand. And if there's not enough fruit and occasionally protein too, because they, they do wait for the insects to pupate. Yeah. And they'll be gobbling up larvae and uh, pupa as long as they can find it. So they're getting the protein at that point, um, but mostly they're looking for fruit. And when there's not fruit, they'll go after bark, young leaves, fungus, anything else that has some caloric value. But they're, they're always being stressed out by this, this problem of not having enough food. And of course, in this situation, large aggregates of, of orangutans together just couldn't survive as a group. Yeah. So if they're going for food and they see a giant anthill versus a, a tree ripe for the picking, what would they prefer? Would it depend on what they have had and what they're looking for in terms of protein or sugar? Yeah. Yeah. They're going to they're gonna adjust their diet and wow. they're going to like eat the fruit for maybe the morning and then they'll come down maybe if it's a male typically and tear apart that, that termite mound or that ant nest yeah. and try to go after the protein there. Wow. All right. Wow, so they're totally just diet. They're what's the word that all the all the lifters use? It's uh, they're meal prepping. Yeah, they're, they're well, getting their meals ready. Uh, they they do the best they can, and of <laughs> course, um, you know, you just never know what you're going to run into. This is why their big brain is so important because mm-hmm. in their home range, they have to monitor their favorite, say, fruiting trees. Like I always talk about durians. You know, the durian <laughs> tree uh, evolved from Borneo, and of course. Um, Orangutans learn to love durians. It's not something they learn right away. They have to try it out, and they have to like watch their mother eat. <clears throat> In it fact, it seems like a, an acquired taste. It's an acquired taste <laughs> for some, but once they get it, uh, they love it, and then they're going to remember where those durian trees are. Oh, okay. So what they have to do is they're wandering around looking for 
you know, their regular meals, the figs that are out there, some of the, the nuts that are there, and some of the other um, high caloric fruits that they can use to power themselves during the day. They're keeping, they're monitoring the status of the fruits that are, are growing out. And they don't want to eat them prematurely because, you know, the fruits put in toxins and other compounds to prevent predators from eating them too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also want to make sure they get there before the other competitors do. Yeah. So, again, it's this um, monitor your situation. Look for the food to get you through the day. You know, make sure you have enough uh, food uh, so that you can take your little siesta during the during the afternoon mm-hmm. and then perhaps build a nest nearby a fruit supply that will be there in the next morning when you wake up. There's just so much to think about, right? I mean, there's so much to develop and they've had to do this for for how many years? I mean, talk about the the biogeography of getting the orangutans to to these islands. What happened? What was that process? Well, it's, uh, it was a million-year journey, millions of years. I mean, from yeah. when they split away from their common ancestor and before they were orangutans. This is before they looked like orangutans, but they clearly had to make that journey eastward to Southeast Asia and then down to Borneo and Sumatra. Yeah. And along the way, of course, you know, they evolved these characteristics, these adaptations, uh, the culture. Again, with a big brain, you also can evolve culture. And you pass the, those that knowledge that you have in this one area to your offspring or to your conspecifics watching yeah. from afar. So in some parts of Sumatra, like in the swamps, um, orangutans learn how to um, fish for termites or fish for ants, which they may not do somewhere else. And this, this is a part of their culture. Mm-hmm. And they learn how to do it, just like chimpanzees do, by watching their mother or watching others fashion tools, making them more efficient in fishing out the biting insects. But this is a source of protein for them. But, you know, if you brought another orangutan in from another area, they would be unable to do it for a while until they watched and learned. It's that cultural. It's that cultural. So when we lose a population of orangutans, we're not just losing the animals themselves, but a unique culture. And this is why we're so focused on saving orangutans and orangutan populations because you know if we're going to be studying them in the future we want to make sure they're still there and they're still uh they have the culture that they have generations of culture yeah exactly and each of these little sub communities yeah we call them metapopulations metapopulations yeah and so the metapopulation just like you know we could some people kind of think orangutans this great big thing, right? It's like, how many orangutans are there? And they just kind of brush, broad brush stroke. Mm-hmm. These are the orangutans, and we're going to lose them all. But in fact, they're, they're broken down into metapopulations or breeding populations that have, perhaps, like I said, their own culture. But they're all breeding amongst themselves. You know, Again, they spread out once they get to become uh, sub-adults. The males will wander away from their natal area where they were born mm-hmm. and they will seek out a new area to exploit and be far away from where their mother was so they don't deal with the issue of inbreeding right and and so but again this may be 
hundreds of uh, kilometers in area, or it could be very small. Again, these metapopulations vary in size. But the point is, is that each one of them is a breeding population. And they, each population, each breeding population is subject to the kinds of threats that are happening. And if you're too small of a breeding population, there's a great likelihood that it could actually crash into extinction. So when they do the simulations in the, the models of how this population will exist for the next 100 years, mm -hmm. if, if it's a small population and we have like a high hunting pressure on that population, there's a much greater likelihood that population will plummet to extinction within 5, 10, or 15 years. Wow. And so what we want to do is study these populations, monitor them, and protect them for future generations. Wow. Yeah, how important. Now, something's been bugging me because you talked about how they, they gain these adaptations as they came to this area. Right. Can you theorize what these orangutans might have looked like, common ancestors, a million, two million, three million years ago before they even got to the islands? Well, we know that at one point, uh, orangutans got much larger than they are today. Mm -hmm. In fact, you've heard of the species Gigantopithecus. Oh, yeah. You should guys look it up at home if you haven't seen that. They're enormous. Enormous, like 8 to 10 feet tall. I mean, it's really big, uh, much larger than the gorillas, today's gorillas, right? So, but these are, well, they were definitely ground living animals. They were so large. Mm -hmm. um, and we knew they lived in like South China because uh, many of their teeth, their molars, uh, were found, you know, many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago, and, you know, sold in, in um, drugstores in China <laughs> to be used for traditional medicines. Yeah. Wow. But um, the fact that these molars are so large, you can then extrapolate back to the size of the animal itself. You know, so there's not a lot of fossils mm -hmm. out in the, you know, the fossil records, but there's enough to kind of provide this kind of roadmap of their journey from their beginnings where they were much smaller, like maybe a gibbon size, mm -hmm. to becoming a much, much larger uh, great ape. And, of course, they, they went through maybe one of the branches led to Gigantopithecus, while the other common ancestor led to today's Pongo yeah. um, and with the adaptations that they have. And we've talked about some of their adaptations, but, you know, uh, it's an amazing journey that they've taken. And they are now, you know, one of our closest living relatives, uh, the only Southeast Asian great ape um, threatened by our own uh, activities that we're doing and yeah. our own consumption of products driving, you know, the, the trade and commodities like palm oil or uh, pulp and paper. We know that many of their uh, areas have been changed over the years. And, you know, this is to help with local people uh, and governments to find funds for their people. They need to actually um, have agriculture. And Indonesia, for example, has been an agricultural country for, for as long as it's been around. Uh, it, you know, and this, of course, it's been at a low scale, for, you know, local farmers doing their work. But in recent times, uh, it's become, become a, a kind of an estate um, agriculture, mm -hmm. large-scale agriculture. And when, when we start to scale up to feed the masses, 
this is when we start to run into some of the conflicts that we have. But, you know, with good planning and with the ability to be mindful of what we're doing, there's a, there's a good chance we can make sure orangutans will continue to live, particularly if there's good interaction between government, corporations, and the nonprofit world. Yeah. And, you know, it's better than it was 10 years ago. I, I've been kind of obviously monitoring that on, on this side of the table. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it's been awesome. All right. In Gary's perfect world. So uh, millions of years from now, orangutans are doing great. They're doing fine. What do you think the future of adaptations would look like for the orangutans? Well, I don't think they're going to change much. You don't think so, huh? No, I think they've found their... They found their spot. Their spot, their niche in the forest, their habitat. Uh, I wouldn't want them to change. <laughs> I think human beings, because we're so more generalist, we're going to be changing. Mm -hmm. Especially as we, if, as we leave the planet or if we, you know, start to tweak ourselves with CRISPR and you know, start injecting genes. I mean, there's a, there's a likelihood we could evolve. Yeah. But I think for orangutans, the, you know, they're the gardeners of the forest. Mm -hmm. they're, they're actually protecting us by making sure that the Bornean and Sumatran rainforests remain the lungs of the earth. Isn't that neat? So we don't want them to change too much, but we want to make sure that we take care of the forests in which they live and we can coexist in a, in a beneficial way. Yeah. Do you think maybe it could get more cerebral on, on their side of things? I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I taught them sign language. And, you know, one of the thoughts was, well, maybe we can open up this channel of communication and see where it takes us. Mm -hmm. but, but I found that what orangutans are interested in communicating with signs is about food and about <laughs> contact and about activities, All things that stuff. we do. All yeah. the good stuff, right? Uh, they're not interested in having higher level conversations about existence. They're, <laughs> you know, but the reality is is that they they are much smarter than most people realize. They do have mm. the ability to displace in time, like I mentioned before about the long calls. Yeah, they can actually signal to a female, "I'm going to be several kilometers away in this direction." You know, before they turn in for the night, they give their long call. Oh. And this is, you know, this is basically telling them tomorrow, I'm going to be wandering in this direction. So if you want to meet up with me, that's where I'll be. That's, I mean, that's amazing. Space yeah. and time, yeah. cognitive thinking on that level. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the more we study them, and again, you know, we can study them in different ways. I mean, I prefer today to just watch their behavior and um, not get too close to them. Because uh, we've learned over the past number of years that we humans could be a, a great vector to, to transfer diseases to them. Mm. And we want to make sure that their populations are not going to be uh, affected by our diseases, our respiratory diseases and other diseases we have. And vice versa, we don't want them transferring it to us as well. Yeah, the first time I ever saw face masks was before COVID when I was looking up videos of folks interacting with orangutans and chimpanzees and they had these masks on and I was thinking what what could that possibly yeah. do but this is it communicable diseases we were we were well aware of that many many years ago before COVID mm -hmm. and of course it wasn't um, a great leap then for for those people taking care of the orangutans in the rehab centers or the release areas to just maintain this good uh, practice, health and safety. Um, but of course we had to keep people from coming in during COVID and most everything was locked down. 
Uh, it's slowly starting to open up. Mm-hmm. So if you want to go out and see orangutans now, there are ways to do so. Eco-tours you can take. Many of the eco-tour operators were really suffering during COVID, um, but they are looking for you know trepid explorers and adventurers to go out uh, following good practices. And of course, we don't want people getting close to the orangutans to observe them from a good distance to appreciate their magnificence in the trees where they belong. Mm-hmm. And if you're lucky, you may find a wild orangutan um, living its life up in the trees. How awesome. Or traces of it. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can track these orangutan around the rainforest, right? It's hard. It really is hard. You know, if you go out to look for a wild orangutan, you'd be very hard-pressed to actually locate it. Wow. And so what you normally do is you go to an area where maybe they're being studied. Mm-hmm. And you know they're being followed. And, and so there may be somebody who, say, knows where this orangutan nested for the night. Um, if you're lucky, and again, you can't do this everywhere, but if you, you wander into an area where there's some research going on and you make the right connections, you might be able then to wake up next morning and go out to a site where they're watching this orangutan um, and following it. Mm. But orangutans also don't like people, uh, wild ones don't like people following them. And so they can quickly move. Say, imagine you're in a, in a swamp forest. Yeah. And now this orangutan is high, you know, hightailing it out of there. Yeah. Uh, and you see the trees moving uh, and they're gone. And now you're trying to figure out where they are. But they're very, very cryptic. They're very, very, you can't see them well. Like the red color makes mm-hmm. them blend in with the, with the foliage. Uh, they don't vocalize very often until they're maybe seen and then they feel threatened. Wow. And so you have to listen to where the branches are swaying or maybe hear a sound of something. And then you have to pick them up again and follow them. So you walking on the ground in a swampy area, these orangutans can move faster in their trees. Than it's you hard can. to walk through swamps. Anthony. Yeah. I got to tell you, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, you can't see the bottom of the forest floor. Um, and you know, you could trip over roots very easily. They're submerged Man. and you know, not all the swamp has been, you know, uh, on the trails with boards that you can walk on. Yeah. So you, you find yourself sometimes off the trails in, into those areas between the trails, and it, it's not easy going. I wonder if the orangutans are looking down, just laughing a little bit, being like, ah, oh, look at those land dwellers. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they, they can have a sense of humor, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's great. Uh, while we're here, we should promote a couple of the uh, events that we've got going on, the art contest for the Orangutan right. Republic Foundation. Do you want to talk on that a bit? Well, actually, it's part of uh, Rangatang Caring Week coming up. Wonderful. Which is from the 13th to the 19th of November oh. of this year, 2022. We're going to be doing a, a an art and a uh, video clip contest. So we're asking the creatives around the world to submit their original artwork or a video of 30 seconds. Uh, we want to keep it very short because this is kind of the format these days. Okay. Um, about the topic of orangutan superheroes don't wear capes. Orangutan superheroes don't wear capes. Exactly. I love and, you it. know, there have been people, and many of them are Indonesians working out there for many, many years, taking care of the orangutans who are our superheroes. They're doing Absolutely. a lot of 
hard work. You know, during COVID, they were doing amazing work, making sure the orangutans are kept safe. And part of what we want to do is we want to see the people of Indonesia who are going into conservation take on these roles of, of conservationists, of wildlife managers, of the people who staff and work at the various orangutan centers. And so, you know, if they're the ones who live out there, uh, we want to see them continue to work with these orangutans because they can then let others in their population know how valuable and important orangutans are. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the whole idea is, you know, this is, this is a, an asset for the country of Indonesia. And if they value and protect orangutans, then the rest of the population will get to learn and be proud of this species, that, uh, these three species that live in the forests and who uh, are really a draw for the rest of the world because, you know, the, the Western world has been enamored with orangutans for many, many years. Yeah. And in fact, the research, the original research was done by Westerners. But increasingly, we are seeing Indonesians step up and take this on as one of their um, uh, degrees that they want to take in biology, forestry, or veterinary science. In fact, the Orangutan Republic Foundation is proud to give scholarships called the Orangutan Caring Scholarships for just those students. Full circle. I was Full like, circle. where is he going to mention it? He does oh, the scholarships man. for it. That's perfect. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, we've already graduated nearly 150 wow. uh, Indonesians who have taken the degrees, have gotten their degrees, and all of them become advocates for orangutans. They go back to their villages, back to the cities, and they can talk it up. Uh, to their friends and to their colleagues, business partners, how important orangutans are and how valuable they are. Mm -hmm. So we want to see that program continue. But Orangutan Caring Week is a week where we want to get people excited about orangutans. You know, maybe now that we can get out, you know, maybe to table an event yeah. on campuses around the country and let people know about orangutans. Um, and there's, there's a lot of, you know, materials they can, they can get online to, you know, talk it up um, and get people excited about taking care of orangutans. Absolutely. And there's plenty to get excited about. Absolutely. There's so many ways to offer your help as well. I was looking at so many places online that offer these positions that can help the orangutans. And yeah. whether you're a financial analyst or, or you're a great at social media content or if you're a great just board advisor like there's so many positions that are open you can be busy all day might as well be busy and help the environment at the same time i mean well we really love our volunteers and yeah. we think that volunteerism is is the key to getting people to really care about um doing something with their lives that have meaning <clears throat> because you know it's one thing to work your you know the eight to five and 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 bring in the money but um so many people feel disconnected to the real world mm-hmm and to have, be able to have a platform where people can come and do something significant to help care for the lungs of the earth or another species like the orangutan, that gives them purpose. And this is what's driven me um, throughout most of my life. I'd like to share that with other people. So, you know, whether it's during orang orangutan caring week or throughout the year, uh, we have a volunteer program. We'd like to get people involved. Feel free to check out the website at orangutanrepublic.org where you can find out more about how to volunteer. But awesome. Well, Gary, it was awesome to talk to you today, and we'll talk more later. But thank you so much for listening to the Orangutan Republic podcast. 
I am Anthony Porter. You could find me at Outdoor Anthony on Instagram. Gary Shapiro, Rainy Tail Republic Foundation. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Bye. What? What?